where you hear like the the thing going in circles or something like that's what it sounds like some weird alien craft <laughs> this does not make me sound like a sane person <laughs> so what you're saying is you hear something on our recording that the rest of us can't hear <laughs> Well, you know, it could be, we talked, and and Lauren's probably not aware of this, in one of our early episodes, we discussed our third co-host, Raven, the ghost. (gasps) It's Raven. (laughs) Raven is the person that we can blame any technical glitches on, because obviously, obviously we are professionals. It could not have been us. So we have to say, that's so Raven. That's so, oh. And, and now we're going to get some sort of, you know, takedown <laughs> notice. That's um, hilarious. But while they keep us on the air, this is utterly rad. Hi. So utterly rad, if you haven't heard us before, is a show where we talk about Uh, All sorts of things related to families, kids, parents, caretakers of all kinds, shapes, and sorts. Uh, This week, well, in addition to uh, Haley and myself, we have a special guest. You may have heard her on our last episode. We'll let her perhaps introduce herself. Hi, I'm Lauren of Better in Real Life and the Better in Real Life blog and podcast. There you go. So if you haven't yet... Go into iTunes, subscribe to Better in Real Life, subscribe to Otterly Rad, uh, review everybody's stuff, of course, very positively, or Raven may visit you. I don't know. I can't guarantee anything. <laughs> She's out of our control. And I have to um, say, if if you like listening to Rad stuff, I think that you'll probably enjoy the first episode of the Better in Real Life podcast because oh. it was all about um, divorce, Yeah, <laughs> which I thought was a really great icebreaker conversation between Lauren and her husband, Camille. Yes. Yeah, that was good. I was like, yeah, I think he, he was like shocked that I was um, bringing that up. And later, he was like, I didn't know that you were going to talk about that. <laughs> I thought it was great. I was like, just diving right in there. Yeah. (laughs) Well, very good. So make sure after you're done with this episode to check out Lauren's podcast as well. But Lauren apparently enjoyed herself enough with us last episode that she decided to come back. We're very appreciative of that. Thank you for having me. Of course. And uh, in the spirit of continuing to plug stuff, I think, Haley, tonight's topic is something that you're going to be writing about shortly. Yes. Uh, is that um, right? I write a biweekly column for rvanews.com. I'm part of their Raising Richmond um, family column. And coming up soon, there's going to be an article, um, a photo essay of all of the different children's books that my daughter owns. Um, and it's kind of embarrassing because I always make a big push um, to talk about having diverse book collections. I'm a librarian, so it's kind of what I do. Um, and so I decided to take a look at my daughter's book collection to see if um, if I was walking the walk. And it turns out that I kind of suck. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so I guess diving right in with that. I walked around my house with a piece of paper tallying all of the different books that we own for her specifically. Um, She's a toddler, so they're all pretty easy to find because they're the big, chunky board books. Um, And I tallied 59 books that featured just animals. So I feel like, okay, that's, that's kind of its own category. 
um, 21 books where all of the characters were white, two books where there was at least one diverse character, um, someone who wasn't a white parent or child, um, six books that had more than one uh, non-white character, and four books that had diverse protagonists or like fully diverse casts which is kind of depressing because I'm a librarian and I should know better. But I think that that kind of speaks to the, the trouble with that is that it's, it is really easy to talk about having diverse books collection, book collections, but in reality, what, what ended up in my house is still extremely white bread. So I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about that and what it's like in our houses and how, um, how we can build diverse book collections at home um, more thoughtfully, because I certainly need to do that. So I'm, I'm totally on board with your idea of, of trying to be more um, thoughtful about your collection development, if you will, of your kids' collection. But I think first off, we have to give you props just for the sheer numbers that we're talking <laughs> yeah. about there. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, that's to, not to nothing. Be fair, to be fair, um, some of these books were discards from the library that were too ripped up and sad to keep in the collection. So sometimes I take discards home. So um, <laughs> these are not brand new, Ew. lovely books. Well, <laughs> and consider three and we had a whole book only party last year. And I think you have like twice the number of books we own. But again, <laughs> librarian, like this yeah. stuff comes home with me. Like, like school teachers bring home the common cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and to be fair, school teachers bring home those books too. I have a giant tote of books for my daughter that comes from my mother, who was a kindergarten through third grade teacher for many years. So this is not at all a new thing. A lot of the books that my kid ends up reading are from the late 70s or earlier even. Uh, but I should say too, think about the, the size of your collection again, not to keep harping on that, but... Don't shame me over my No, no, no. I'm not shaming you. What I'm saying is imagine that you were a person who had a much smaller collection. What are the numbers of, you know, diverse protagonists going to look uh, like in a much smaller collection? You know what I mean? So I mean, I would I would hope that everyone at least has one. My one of the four was um The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats and that's a pretty common one for people to have. But I was also surprised. I mean, one of the ones was a book from the seventies. So it's gotta be, yeah, it's great. But also kind of sad that of the four, one of them isn't even a book you can like, it's out of print. Right. <laughs> you can't get Rosa too little anymore, which is really sad because it's a great book. Um, but yeah. So I would imagine most collections, if we're just talking about ratio wise would have to be pretty. Well, I think it's interesting that like, uh, okay. So right now in my house, Gabe's favorite book is dragons love tacos. I love that book. Really good book. Yeah. But it's books like that where um, there's not like a clear storyline. Like, you know, it's not a, it's not a, this happened, this happened, and this happened, and there's an ending. It's just sort of like a funny book about dragons, but there are kids in it. There's at least like one little boy, I think is like the main character. There might be his friend, but why? Like, but he's white. There's like no real reason to choose white in that scenario. He's just a guy who throws a party for dragons and it's a taco party and that's it. Like this, he could be anything. And I think that's like a really big missed opportunity if we don't want, I mean, 
cultural stories are, I think, are really super important. And um, being that my husband is Mexican, we really try to have, like, folklore stories from um, Latin America and Mexico in our house and Spanish language stories and all that stuff, which is, like, another topic which we'll probably get to, but um, that I have feels about. But, yeah, like, I think it's easy just to have, like, a diverse array of people that your kid gets to see in a variety of situations in books that is just not happening. And it's just kind of a lazy thing that's, that publishers are not doing, that illustrators aren't doing. Yeah, I think you're hitting on a really good point there that a lot of times what we're really talking about is omission as much as anything, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes what you have is really sort of complicated or, or odd takes on historical events. I know just today, I think we saw a thing from Scholastic Books about a picture book related mm-hmm. to George Washington that's yes. being pulled from shelves. Uh, you probably know more about that than me, Haley. Um, I was reading about it this morning. Um, Scholastic is pulling the book, I believe it's called A Birthday Cake for George Washington. Um, and it's basically a story about George Washington's slaves baking him a cake, um, which sounds horrible just saying that, um, but it's actually apparently much worse. They, they kind of gloss over the whole, these people are enslaved aspect of it. Um, and it's apparently pretty nuanced. So if you're an older reader, reader, you'll pick up on like the sadness of the characters that, you know, on one hand they're baking this cake and it's supposed to be happy, um, but they aren't free. But for younger readers, that is pretty much lost on them. Um, So, so Except pulling why it. is there? Why is that the focus? That's an insane focus. <laughs> so it, well, it actually it's based on a true, um, a true thing that happened. Um, I'm sure he did. He did have a chef named Hercules. Um, so it's based on true things, but the fact that it was turned into a book just completely glosses over some stuff. Like for for younger readers, I think nuance is probably not the best thing no they're they're young Uh -uh. readers (laughs) Um, right well and just that choice of of story right Right. i mean you can you could look at something uh, like uh even well this isn't for kids but something like downton abbey and it's like yes downton abbey totally glosses over any of the like classes stuff that's happening here or any you know the real lives of people in those positions maybe weren't as rosy as they sometimes come out to be on a show like that. But as an adult, you can navigate that a little bit better, right? But as you say, with a kid, you don't really have that context to be able to work with. Right. I mean, what child is going to read an end note by the author? I mean, I might have as a kid, but I was a huge nerd. (laughs) Well, and you wouldn't have as a toddler regardless, right? Right. So, um, so it is. I mean, you've got on one hand a lot of um, publishers who aren't taking the opportunity when it's there to include diverse characters just as a matter of course. Um, white is kind of the default character. Um, even in books where it doesn't seem – it shouldn't make a difference. Like the book um, On the Night You Were Born, there's no reason – like you don't even have to show a baby in this book. It's just all dancing animals. I mean, it's pretty magical realism here. Um, I mean, you've got dancing polar bears. I don't think there was no reason to include a a white baby on multiple pages. You could just take it out. And then that book is accessible to way more readers. And you'd think you'd sell more books. Right. (laughs) Which, I mean, if we're talking about the bottom line being money, 
it just seems like a no brainer to me. But do you think, do you think that white parents that are not, uh, liberal minded, um, shy away from books where people of color are the main protagonist? I think they do. Um, do they get like pigeonholed into being like the African American section book, the, the yes. Hispanic children's book? Mm-hmm. They instead of just do. being treated as like this is a great story for everybody. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean the exception to that rule is right if you have an award winner or something that maybe you can bring that in, or there's an illustrator who becomes very popular or something like that that you can sort of. Uh, pull off that but the same could be argued in a lot of types of media as well you know that there's this sort of um implicit segregation that happens with material which is a shame but one of the newberry winners this year was newberry right is a book all about um a kid who rides the bus with his grandmother and uh it's a wonderful book and the protagonist is white not a white child and that's you know but how many Again, how many of those parents would come across that book even without it being an award winner? Yeah. It kind of boggles me because I feel like Sesame Street has already has been like fighting this battle for like mm-hmm. ever in creating diverse urban, you know, options for people to see themselves in kids programming and the fact that in children's books, among, and it's all media, that it's still kind of a holdout of whitewashing is really frustrating. Because it's so, I mean, you're talking about the fantastical in so many ways. So if you can make up a story about something that doesn't exist, it's got to be easier to put more people of color in children's books. It's not hard. It doesn't have to say anything. You don't have to say anything about it. It doesn't have to be a topic. It can just be, it's just a picture of someone right. who doesn't look like right. me. And I think that right. that's, that's the hardest thing. It's like looking for books where it's not necessarily like coming from a librarian perspective. If I'm looking for a book for a kid, I'm trying to find someone that they can relate to in some way. And that's so hard to do if a book isn't about a specific topic, because so many books, they're not going to catalog it as like Hispanic child protagonist. Um, it just doesn't happen in cataloging. So it's incredibly frustrating that there are so few of those books because I guarantee like 99 times out of a hundred, if I'm looking for a book for this kid, searching by the catalog, isn't going to find what I'm actually looking for. So I really just have to read the literature deeply to actually just know in my brain, Oh, I'm looking for a B and C book like specifically for this kid. Um, so Let's put a pin in that particular yeah. thing of how to find some of these because I yes. think that'll be a, a longer part of the conversation. I do want to bring up, though, kind of what you're saying is that when you're looking as a bookstore, as a library, what have you, and trying to purchase these books, oftentimes what happens is that just books that feature diverse protagonists are hard to sort of pick out like you're talking about. Like it's not the easiest thing in the world to look down a long list of books and just ID those to put in your collection. So what often happens is the books that end up in those collections are like the very special episode books, right? They're the ones that, so like it ends up being that most of the books in your collection that have, uh, you know, a Latina protagonist have to do with some sort of 
I don't know, you know, traditional folklore, there's the issue revolves around their ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. Is this something that you, Lauren, you've um, run into in looking for books for your kids? So the, my biggest frustration with trying to get um, like Spanish English combination books or just books in Spanish are that when I go to the big bookstores to buy them, um, <laughs> I go to like, they have like a Spanish language section because it's like a big enough part of our, of our um, like demographic that it's necessary but they're just books in translation. And that frustrates me because I don't want all of the Dr. Seuss books in Spanish. I want authentic stories that are not necessarily folklore, but just like stories in Spanish with Mexican protagonists or Puerto Rican or, you know, people from South America or from Spain or whatever. And um, so that's been my biggest hurdle. And I've, asked my um, in-laws who live in Miami right now um, to like for, for Christmas I like I've been asking them for like Spanish language books that they can find because like maybe in that demo there's more available to them um, there are a couple good ones but yeah like just being able to find something that is an interesting story that isn't just a translation has been has been difficult right. And so, you know, going back to this whole money discussion, if all this stuff is true, where it's hard for books for booksellers, it's hard for libraries to identify the book, the very books that you're talking about, Lauren, that you would love to have. Mm -hmm. It means that publishers are less likely to want to deal with authors and illustrators that want to create those sorts of books if they feel like they're not going to be the ones that sell as much. Am I going too far by suggesting that? No, I think that that makes sense just from from a business perspective. Like, I see why it happens. It just it sucks that it happens. Right. And unfortunately, kids' books are not really uh, a great option for things like ebook readers. I mean, ebook readers right. are a little bit fraught anyway, but um, independent publishing on the adult level or just on, you know, text uh, has been made a lot easier by the fact that you can just distribute a file that is readable on a whole bunch of things, um, gets your reach out there a little bit more potentially. Again, people still have to find you, but you don't have to rely on a publisher. Um, with children's books, it's really not that way. I mean, I don't see that much children's literature being um, consumed on that kind of a device. No. And I mean, even in the library, we have things like tumble books, um, that people can use, but they're just really underused, I think, because they're clunky. And yeah. the number of hoops that publishers put up for people to get an ebook, they don't really want to go through all those hoops for a book that takes two minutes to read. Um, and there are dual language yeah. ones on there, yeah. but they are exactly the type of stuff that you're saying, Lauren, that you see mm -hmm. in big stores. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that, it's frustrating. Just I feel like it's just lazy. Like it's it's just laziness. Like if you're willing to put a book in translation that's been read a million times in English. That's just easier because it's title recognition than the publishers backing culturally appropriate people of color. I mean, in, in a foreign language, but also just like different cultures being represented in an authentic way. That's not um, like putting all Mexicans as, <laughs> migrant right, no. migrant workers or like 
putting all African Americans in urban settings, or you know that that's mm-hmm. we're getting like it's too stereotypical, and that and that's also children's literature is just like playing off these tropes. So, do you think if the book um, Dragons Love Tacos, if it had featured yeah. a Mexican kid, would that have been not okay or okay? No, I wish that that. (laughs) 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 That's funny because I didn't even think about it. Uh, I just would have liked it. I don't know. I just would have liked someone other than like, it's like this adorable white chubby kid. And and I'm like, oh, I've seen this kid like like a million times. Like, I don't need to see this kid anymore. Mm-hmm. it'd be cool well, to have like yeah. just a difference or a girl like it would you know why is it a little boy can it be a girl girls can love tacos i, so I think just do. that representation is a big deal then too right yeah yes yeah. we can have stories uh, about people but even just having representation and not just coloring every face the same shade because it's easy to do that yeah yeah, yeah i mean we we um early on in this series of, of shows we've we talked a bit about graphic novels because that's something that we like and we recommended some to people and it's only been in the past few years in that industry that there's really been talk even just about background people like yes. hey when you're coloring in all of those background people maybe <laughs> you don't just color them the same shade of white maybe you color them different shades and maybe that would eventually lend you know, lead to protagonists coming out of that or or characters who actually, you know, speak or whatever coming along that, uh, that are not just the same people that we've seen over and over and over again. Yeah. You know who does a really good job of that, (laughs) which is hilarious, but the hands are not for hitting books. (laughs) (laughs) They are like the most diverse books ever. (laughs) And they're just, they're awesome. Well, and I'll say, I mean, to a certain extent, I know there are books like, um, oh, what is it? Is it the Young Genius series um, where they just basically it's kind of the type that you're talking about, Haley, where they just skipped people altogether and went to animals to kind of circumvent uh, having to deal with representation. I don't think that's a whole solution. No. And I know that's not exactly what you're talking about either, but it's interesting to see that I wonder if that isn't how some uh, publishers or, or creators are sort of trying to deal with the issue is just to then say, Oh, well we don't have any kids. So, you know, yeah. And let's I mean, not deal with Brown people. Let's just do animals. Right. Right. And right. I think, I, I think yeah. that <laughs> on some level, I, I love the fact that there are so many animal books because especially, um, when you are trying to reach a lot of kids, it is kind of universal. Like I love Richard scary. I'm a little confused as to why this worm is living with a family of cats, but I feel like, Hey, it's a diverse family. Um, (laughs) (laughs) adoption. So right. That's right. Um, so there's that, but so I I think that those books do fill, um, um, a needed hole because they, they are books that any child can pick up, um, and see, you know, they can see what they want to see, which I think is really important. Um, so I'm, I'm a big advocate for those books being out there. But I do think it's important, obviously, to have more books with not just one diverse character and then being like, okay, fine, we've, we've done that. So, you know, let's <laughs> move on to the, like, there was one book I had where like the diverse character was on the cover. And I was like, that doesn't count. Like we're not we're not spending Wait, only time on, on the, the cover? cover. Only on the cover. 
<laughs> I was like, that, no, that tally mark does not get to count because that they're not in the book. Wow. We're not spending, like, who spends time on, you don't read the cover to the kid. I don't. <laughs> so parents who are listening to this or people who have, you know, tiny humans around that they want to give uh, diverse books to or expose them to these kinds of things, uh, how do they find them? So I have a couple places that I look. Um, I do not do collection development for my whole library system, but I do some basic collection development for my branch. So if there's something specific out there that I want to see, I can request it. Um, And to do that, I use the Smithsonian Book Dragon. You can find them at smithsonianapa.org slash book dragon, all one word. Um, And they're books for the multiculti reader. And it is awesome. It's this incredible site just full of, it's kind of like a Tumblr where there are just post after post of really easy to see covers of books that feature multicultural characters. Um, And when you click on them, you can get more information about them. But I find it to be um, just a really useful, quick hit resource if I'm just looking to browse and see what's out there. Um, It's technically the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center, but they feature a lot of different characters. Um, So I think that's an incredible resource right there. Another resource that I really like is called We Need Diverse Books. Um, If you're in the library world, you've probably already heard of them. And if you aren't in the library world, um, this is a great way to introduce yourself to them. Um, They're a campaign for having diverse books. And what I really like is their resources section where you can find places to find diverse books. Um, They have a summer reading series, resources for writers, end of the year book lists. And it's just a really useful place to find that type of information. And you can find them at weneeddiversebooks.org. And they're a really great resource too. And then my third spot is something that's a little bit more long form, but if you've got the time, it's really worth digging into. It's called Reading While White, um, and that's readingwhilewhite.blogspot.com. Um, and they're allies for racial diversity and inclusion in books for children and teens. And they have a lot of long form discussions about um, things like we were talking about today, like the recent winner, Last Stop on Market Street. There's a discussion about that book that just won the award. Um, and there are just all of these other discussions about books, like um, the recent book for kids, something about desserts. I don't remember what it's called now. Um, but there are just a lot of books that they talk about and, um, the good, the bad, the troubling, the praiseworthy, it's all here, um, in kind of long form blog posts. So I highly recommend that as well. Um, so three different sites that I use, um, for kind of three different types of looking for stuff. That's, uh, that's great actually. I mean, it's such a challenge, I think, to identify these that any resources can be, uh, can be really useful. Lauren, do you have any uh, things that you wanted to share? My only tip is when, um, you know, if you're going to an independent bookstore, which I always suggest, is talk to the people who work there. Uh, They're very incredibly knowledgeable about what the books they have. Always ask about if they have a diversity section. Um, If you're looking for, uh, like, Spanish language books, I found the best books we own for that came from independent bookstores where they have like a small Spanish language section. Um, but with like 
really fun stories that aren't just translation, like um, uh, my son's favorite book right now is called Nino, and it's about a little boy who um, dresses up as a Mexican wrestler and then battles um, some of the, uh, like, myths in Mexico. Like, he battles a zombie, um, but they, like, say the name for it in Spanish, and then he battles Yaya Llorona, um, and a bunch of other stuff, like this devil sort of person, but he's, and like he, he beats them by like, um, beating them at their own game. And then spoiler at the end, his little sisters wake up and, and they're like the ultimate, um, battle. <laughs> so, um, it's a really good one and it's Spanish and English. So that's really good. But yeah, I think there are, there are really, really, really great diverse multilingual books in, in the world that are accessible. It just takes um, going to those websites that Haley mentioned, and also just talking to the people who who know who, whose daily life is sorting and and looking at these awesome reads. Right. So maybe what I'd throw in then is that um, you know Haley and I are both librarians. Check with your local library, see what they might already have, and they might have some great picks, just like Lauren's talking about with the independent bookstore. Now. If they don't, or if you come across something through your own web searching or just discovery, um, and you find something great, tell your local library about it. Yes. Most of us would love to have people come in and say, it would be really awesome if you had this book. You know, assuming the book is not out of print for 50 years and costs $500, <laughs> um, we would love to have that kind of stuff in the collection because there's a community need a community desire for it yes and be specific say i think that you should have this book because x y or z you know if we just i know whenever we get um suggestions at my library having the more detail customer suggestion is really helpful because that shows us exactly why this book is being requested and why there's a community need and is if that's something we need to dig into a little bit further right and in a lot of cases you know uh, libraries like everybody strapped on budgets, um, especially depending on how the political climate changes. Um, libraries could be even more strapped for cash in the future. But being able to say, the reason I want to spend money on this book is because someone came to the desk and said, this book is awesome, you should have it, is a really strong message that we can that we can bring across. So I don't think that in most cases, libraries don't carry really awesome books because um, they don't want to have them. Often it's either that they just have a limited budget that they're working with or they have trouble finding them because in addition to finding those, they're trying to find every other type of cool book out there. So if you find some books that are amazing, Go to your local library and encourage them, if they don't have it, to have it too. And if they do have it, tell them how great it is that they do have it. That might encourage them to purchase more in that category. Yes. So when someone makes a request, how does that work? Explain to the layperson. So if I want a book and I and I go up to the desk and I'm like, you know, there's this book and I, I've heard great things and you guys don't carry it. Where how does where does that that conversation go after that? So maybe I'll start just because we have like a very simple procedure. Yours which is, is much easier than mine. <laughs> I kind of figured. So basically you come up to a desk where I work and say, I really think you should carry this book. And the person at the desk says, awesome. And writes it down. And that's about it. And like, if but then you want where does them, it go? 
Well, so so what would happen <laughs> is we have a few people who order books, and like in the kids section, we have a youth services department that orders pretty much all of the kids' books. And then so it would the, go to. Oh, I'm sorry. Say, go ahead. And then in the basement. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> there are these other people. <laughs> yes, there are the people who actually. Um, process the orders and catalog the books and so forth. But basically the person at the desk would give your request to the people who actually make the lists to order books. And more often than not, again, you know, they look at the book before they decide to order it. But if you're picking an awesome book, they're going to add it to the list. And then a few weeks later, it shows up on the shelf now, you may have to ask them, like, can you let me know when it's here or can you put a hold on it for me or whatever? Um, but we're pretty uh, sort of casual about that whole process. Now, <laughs> Haley's library, Haley works at a much larger library system than I do. Yes. So I suspect that has a lot to do with the process you're about to hear about. <laughs> well, um, it's actually not that bad. Um, <laughs> but First, you provide a blood sample. But it's, uh, <laughs> yes, Nathan lives in Mayberry, all in one building with this going on. I live in a county that stretches something like 400 square miles or something. So it's it's fairly big. Um, I, I don't have the exact numbers, so that may not be the correct number. Um, <laughs> but it's a really big county. Like it takes me over an hour to travel from one branch all the way to the other. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, it's a big county. Um, I think Nathan's looking up statistics on my library no, I'm right not, now. <laughs> I'm not. I believe you. I totally um, believe you. So when someone comes and asks at the desk or they send in, I guess I'll give you the desk analogy first. Um, if they come into the desk, it means I take it down on a sheet of paper. And then at my desk, I open up a shared access, uh, Microsoft access thing. I put in my name, um, the requested book. If there are specific requests for it, or if it's just a general request, um, the reason for the request, why I think we should get it or why the customer thinks we should get it. And then my own opinion, um, which is usually yes, because <laughs> we've gotten this far. Um, and then I hit submit and then I don't hear anything back. But sometimes um, then, you know, maybe two months later, the book shows up. So the other day, um, our staff were unpacking the nice new bin of new books and they pulled out the book um, it's okay not to share, which I requested because I was like, we need this book because it's a diverse book. It's a different parenting book from all of the other parenting books we have. And you, oh, you would laugh so hard to hear my staff just like peeing their pants over this book. <laughs> they were like, someone's a contrarian. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so sometimes I don't necessarily say who requested the book. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's how it goes if someone actually requests in person. If they request through our little online forum, sometimes it can take a little bit longer because it has to go through different email chains in order to finally get to the right person. But it does take a little bit longer on our end just because we're such a big system. Right. Um, and so the people it's going to are ordering big batches of stuff for 10 different library branches. So it's a little bit longer. So the main point here is that if you make a request, um, big system, little system, it should get to a real life person very quickly. Yeah. I mean, even a, even a big place like uh, the Seattle Public Library has all sorts of really uh, interesting, if you're a giant data geek, like computerized ways of figuring out what books they want to order based on holds and checkouts and other things. Like they really dig into their data. Um, 
which frankly we don't keep, so we wouldn't be able to really figure it out. But um, we would be, um, you know, they figure out a lot of this stuff um, programmatically as well as through requests. So different libraries deal with it different ways. But but I think the key is whatever process happens on the back end, the first step is that personal contact. Yes. And, and that makes such a difference because whether it's me um, passing a note to somebody or sending an email or it's Haley uh, documenting in her note that not only does she agree with this pick, but this is why the person really liked the book. Right. It's that content that's the really important part. Yeah. And, and I mean, how if, often does that happen? How often do you someone request, does someone request a book? Very rarely for me. Yeah. Very I think rarely. they don't feel they have any power over that. I don't think that's a common knowledge thing. Yeah. No, I I would agree. But now uh, they and, do. And now there's no one has an excuse. <laughs> the world, world knows. Yeah. <laughs> Secret is out. <laughs> Some places will like put out uh, little forms that you can fill out with suggestions and things like that. But even so, that's not the same thing as feeling like you can talk to somebody and say, I would really like to see more books with X. Mm-hmm. Or I think this book is really great. Are there any other books like that that you could have in your library? Yeah. Whatever the thing may be. Yeah. And and I think you could have this same discussion with some of those independent booksellers and have a really good conversation as well. Because again, they're going to want to purchase things for their bookstore that other people are going to buy. Mm-hmm. So if you can say, I would buy this, I know other people who would buy this, you know, that's a draw. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of authors love libraries in part because libraries are the people who move the, their books. Um, they get the word out a lot of the time about popular books, and then people go and they buy more of them. So talking to your library and getting those new books in your system um, it can really be helpful for, for bringing an author who may be little known, um, bringing them a little bit more to light as well. Right. So on this show, uh, we do talk about topics like this, uh, but we also do sometimes look at specific products, specific books, things like that, that we think are especially cool. So if you listen back through our old episodes or you want to listen to all the episodes that we have, go to soundcloud.com slash otterlyrad. We cover some books there. Uh, We covered some winter books that are not Christmas books. Uh, which were very good. Uh, We talked about a a great uh, graphic novel series. We've talked about a bunch of other stuff, and we will continue to cover that kind of material uh, as we go forward as well. So consider us another resource to maybe find some of these books uh, that you may not find otherwise. Uh, And also make sure to check out the Better in Real Life podcast as well. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. It's so much fun. It is so much. And Nathan, where can we find you online? Oh, yes. I'm on Twitter at Just Nathan. And I'm at uh, at We Hermione. All right. Well, until next time, hope everybody stays utterly rad. Bye. Bye.